You're listening to the Transport for the North podcast. Welcome to the Transport for the North podcast. Thank you for joining us. My name's Gemma and I'm going to be hosting today's show as usual along with my colleague Stephen. Today we are going to be talking about the Northern Infrastructure Pipeline uh, scheme that we announced just last week. A five billion pound pipeline of projects to help rebuild and transform the North. We'll be talking all about that. We'll be getting some of the highlights from our latest TFN Talks webinar, all about smarter travel. And we've got part two of my interview with Richard George. All that's coming up on this week's episode. So let's crack right on. Uh, Stephen, hello. How are you today? I'm very good. Thanks, Jeremy. A little bit warm, if I'm honest. It's a very it is hot a bit, day. isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Keep those curtains closed and the windows open. That's the uh, that's exactly. the tips that I've been told. So, um, Stephen. Some fantastic news to to start off the show this week. Last week, Transport for the North announced the five billion pound northern infrastructure pipeline that we need to rebuild and transform the north. Uh, supported by all of TFN members, of course. Anybody who tuned into our board meeting a couple of weeks ago will have seen some discussions um, around this. It's part of the wider economic recovery plan for the region. Uh, Stephen, what do we need to know? Uh, yeah, well, I think to be honest, Gemma, I think you've kind of covered the main points there anyway. I think, mm-hmm. as you said, it's a five billion pound pipeline of kind of railroad, active travel and smart ticketing proposals. And it's kind of split up into into three parts, essentially. So you're looking at uh, schemes that could be delivered in the next six to 18 months and then two to four, uh, sorry, and then two to four years. Um, so I think, and then there's, there's, there's the ones that are a bit more longer term that we're kind of looking at the, you know, the design work for to make sure that they're ready to keep going, hence the reason why it's, it's, it's a pipeline. So I think the fundamental purpose of it, like I said, is to support uh, the economic recovery plan that we've developed that, like I said, was signed off by our board at the last board meeting and they agreed with it. And, and obviously that comes back to the, the whole COVID-19 pandemic. I think everybody knows that there's going to be an economic hit. You know, we've already seen that the country has, you know, gone into, officially gone into recession. So I think what we, with this plan, what we're hoping to do is it'll help to create around 20,000 construction design jobs in the north of England. And like I say, it'll really help to, to you know, to, to, to get the economy moving again. Yeah, no, I think uh, absolutely right. You know, it's called the economic recovery plan. We've uh, we've all been hit by the the COVID nineteen pandemic. Um, throughout the past few months, there's been various schemes, obviously that the government have implemented to to support people and businesses along the way. Uh, but this is really now about the north sort of turning its attention to the short, medium, and longer term recovery, and making sure that we do continue that level up agenda and that you know we're we're working now to create jobs to build better connectivity to support businesses to support freight networks so that over the coming months and years we've got what we need to to really start to thrive again yeah absolutely it's about the rebuild and transform which i think I think a lot of people that have followed transport for the last few years you know i think i think the fundamental message is there you know we know we need that transport infrastructure investments anyway uh, but i think what uh, what the covid 19 pandemic is it's brought forward the urgency with which we need to move things forward so a lot of the projects that we're proposing are ones that we knew needed to be developed anyway so some of them were saying these need to happen quicker 
uh, you know, we need to push these schemes even faster, uh, you know, which is kind of along the line of what we've always been saying anyway. But again, it's just brought forward that urgency. Uh, so it's kind of like, like I said, fitting in with the rebuild and transform, essentially, is what, what we're looking at. That's what it's encapsulated by. Uh, but I think one of the other big things as well is, it's, is, is our board have always been very keen on making sure we uh, address decarbonisation in the right way. Uh, so actually by accelerating a lot of these projects, particularly, you know, you're looking at the active travel uh, side of things, uh, you know, that that will contribute towards that decarbonisation agenda that we also want to push forward. Uh, you know, so there is there's the economic side of it as well, but you know, the, the, the part of it, there is the, there is the decarbonisation aspect as well. And, and this is very much um, a plan by the North for the North, isn't it? What have TFN members had to say about this? Yeah, I mean, I mean, they've all been uh, very supportive. I mean, if you have a look at uh, the press release that went out, you know, we had a variety of comments, you know, pushing forward the urgency of the economic recovery and in their area and the need to better connect the North as a whole. You know, I think I think the comments along the economic recovery plan, while again, they're bringing forward the urgency of it, but it's something that essentially everybody was bought into anyway. You know, if you go back to the strategic transport plan, it was unanimously approved by the board, uh, along with that investment programme at the time. Um, you know, and then we've come forward to now to this economic recovery plan that we brought forward. So again, it's it's something that everybody's bought into. I don't think anybody can really deny uh, the lack of investment that we've seen in the north. Uh, so the comments were really supportive. Yeah, that, that's, it's, um, it's it's good to know that it, it really is a, a a one voice plan, isn't it? That's the uh, the phrase we like to use. You know, one voice for the north. Everybody's kind of you know in it together, and we're all pulling in the in the same direction to get the the best outcomes for our region. So um. Steve mentioned there, if you want to find out more about the Economic Recovery Plan and the Northern Infrastructure Pipeline, head over to our website, transportforthenorth.com. If you navigate to the uh, news section, the full press release uh, is on there with all the details of the projects which could be found from the uh, the board paper in July. Um, but also uh, give us a shout on social media as well, because uh, we've been sharing a lot of the comments from TFN members. We've got some uh, great stats and infographics. You know, we've referenced, you know, the creation of uh, 20,000 design and construction jobs that could come through this northern infrastructure pipeline. And, um, you know, we're looking at a sort of three pound return on investment for every one pound spent. So we'll be highlighting uh, some of the key elements of the northern infrastructure pipeline and economic recovery plan um, across our social media channels in the coming days and weeks. So stay tuned there as well. Uh, we're on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn and Instagram. So search Transport for the North and you will find us there. Um, Next up this week, then, in the podcast, we're going to have um, a bit of a listen back to our latest TFN talk session. Uh, it was all about smarter travel last time. So looking at TFN's integrated and smart travel program, looking at data, how we keep passengers in the know, how we get people around in the way that they need to get around and how we're keeping them safe as well. So. Our TFN Talks panel this time, it was chaired by Rob Parsons, political editor of the Yorkshire Post, with Councillor Keith Aspden, leader of the City of York Council, John Badminton Caps, who's director of Bus Users UK, Tom Forth, head of data at ODI Leeds, Alison Pilling, who is business design lead here on the Integrated and Smart Travel Programme at TFN, and last but by no means least, um, Alex Hornby, CEO of Transdev, who absolutely um, nailed the on-brand 
video conference uh, by taking part from an actual Harrogate bus, which I just found absolutely brilliant. Um, and apparently Harrogate buses have tables on it and Wi-Fi. And I just, that absolutely blows my mind. And again, you know, that is what the future of travel is all about. It's comfort. It's accessible. It's, you know, giving people what they need while they're on the move. Uh, so, Stephen, just give us uh, your take, uh, take home points from, from TFN Talks last time. Yeah, I mean, I think I think the Integrated Smart Travel Programme is, to be honest, it's something that sometimes gets lost in the overall narrative when we're talking about infrastructure development. I think people tend to get focused on Northern Paris Rail, et cetera, which is obviously, of course, crucial in that end-to-end -end journey. But we sometimes forget about the importance of actually what people will actually use, the kind of the, the front-facing front kind of stuff, which is, of course, the Integrated Smart Travel. It's, 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 it's how people are actually going to get around and, and all that type of aspects of it. So I think it was a really interesting discussion uh, because I think you know like I say Alex Harvey was was you know was doing the webinar from, from one of his buses you know essentially so he was he was kind of showing you know what the technology is like and I think there is an aspect of you know there's, there's technology coming forward on on certain buses and things like that to make the journey more useful because if we really want to encourage people to use them we need to make it easier to get on them in the first place um you know uh, and I think that's fundamentally what what the discussion was all about there was a lot of comparisons with uh, obviously, you've got the London, you know, London's got a very integrated network of the countries, particularly in Europe, uh, that we compared ourselves to and saying, you know, we are in the north, we are quite far behind there. So what can we do to, to drive that forward? So it's a really interesting discussion. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's definitely a fascinating uh, area and probably if if I'm honest, it's possibly one of the more important ones for, for transport for the north going forward, even if it doesn't doesn't always get the attention that it should do. Yeah, absolutely. And there's so much going on um, within the, the the wider smart travel um, arena. And anybody who kind of follows that area of, of transport news um, will have seen various stories and updates recently. You know, Flexi season tickets uh, recently introduced by Northern on the Leeds Harrogate line. Um, so many kind of, you know, data stories coming through. So um, let's listen to some of those clips now from the TFN Talks discussion. If you do want to go back, um, we record all of our TFN Talks sessions, so they are available on our website. Just navigate to the TFN Talks page, you'll be able to see all the previous ones, and you can also register for updates on the upcoming ones as well. Welcome to the latest edition of TFN Talks, where Transport for the North brings together a panel of experts to tackle some of the big transport topics of the day. My name is Rob Parsons, and I'm the Gladstone at the Yorkshire Post newspaper in Leeds. Uh, so Alex, how big a role is smart travel playing at, uh, at Transdev? Good morning everyone. Well I think yes, now, now more than ever um, our, our responsibility as a bus operator and our commitment to smart travel and making travel as, as convenient to use and pay for and be happy in doing so um, is coming to the fore more than ever because I think as, as bus operators and as public transport providers and collaborators that we all are, um, now we've, we've got a big battle on now as to how we restore faith in public transport following the, the you know, the quite series of, of, um, of, 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 of messaging, which was, um, which was encouraging people not to use public transport. Now we're very much trying to, trying to do the opposite and, and get people back on board. And I think um, a lot of this is, um, a lot of the work we've been doing has been around reassuring people that buses are clean, safe, ready to go, which was the phrase we've coined very strongly um, in terms of the commitment we've made to customers and colleagues throughout the process. And then, as we say, making it as convenient as possible for 
Um, attitudes, attitudes have obviously changed and priorities have changed for customers. So in terms of smart travel and the use of technology, um, you know, we, we, we have moved very quickly to promote, um, um, move away from monthly and weekly tickets, for example, and into flexible tickets um, that allow people to buy bundles of journeys um, by the use of their mobile phone to do that and, and, and using contactless to pay for that. But also using this kind of the, the app technology that we already have that tracks buses to tell people how many seats are available on board and really just giving people total confidence to travel um, and feel that they're still getting value for money and they're paying for the travel that they need. And I think that's generally what people want. I think that hasn't changed. But I think the real thing that people are wanting to be reassured, reassured now is around is around the cleanliness um, of bus travel, certainly. And the things that, that we've put in, um, you know, the bus I'm sitting on now has got a sanitizer on board. We've, 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 done, we've made efforts to, to, to make the seating um, spaced out more effectively with customers. But again, without making it feel like it's a dangerous environment because it's not a dangerous environment. So we've been very keen not to, not to do that. We've made it seem like a comfortable um, environment that people feel confident to travel in. Um, and as I say, you know, the, the use of technology in doing that so people can see how many people are traveling, so people feel comfortable spacing out. And also beginning to introduce things such as letting, letting customers know when the bus was last cleaned. Um, as I say, cleanliness has now become a big priority for customers. The first time that, the, that, that, that it's ever overtaken punctuality. Punctuality was always the number one demand for customers. And now that has switched to, to cleanliness. And so we have moved very quickly to make, to make customers be reassured in that sense. And design networks and ticketing to make sure it now suits um, what the what current travellers are doing with us. Uh, fascinating stuff, Alex. Thank you very much for that. Um, I'm going to move next on to uh, Dawn Banton Caps from uh, Bus Users UK. And obviously, Dawn, you 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 know you champion the rights of uh, bus users and, and, and coach users. What what what's your feeling about uh, how we move forward in this particular uh, area? Hi, good morning, everybody. So, um, just to follow on from what Alex was saying, um, pre-COVID, uh, the biggest issue was around, is my bus going to be on time? Um, driver staff attitude, and at Bus Users, we deal with approximately about 5,000 complaints each year um, as the industry's alternative dispute resolution body. And consistently over the last five years, those were the people's biggest concerns related to service reliability and driver staff attitude. Um, and pre-COVID, we could link those very clearly to roadworks, congestion, lack of bus priority, or customers simply not being informed of changes. Um, and quickly, customers become very disengaged if they're not kept up to date and they don't know what's going on. That has slightly changed, obviously, during lockdown, partly because obviously we've had less people on the road, but also because of the national and local messaging we've had about whether transport is safe anymore. So we've had hundreds of people contacting us over the last three or four months um, via email, through a complaint, etc. And the kind of things that they're asking us is, um, I need to use the bus to get to the supermarket. Is that an essential journey? Um, I can't walk far or ride a bike. Can I still use the bus? Um, I'm visually impaired and they've redesigned the city centre for social distancing and now I don't know where to get my bus from. I want to pause or get a refund on my ticket because I'm now working from home, but I'm being refused. What can I do? I'm disabled. How do I know I'll be able to get on the bus? I'm a key worker. Will I be given priority to get on the bus? I can't wear a face covering um, because my disability is hidden. Can I still use the bus? 
Um, and lastly, we're getting this one quite a lot, um, is uh, I got on the bus the other day and a third of the passengers were not wearing face coverings. What should I do about it? So clearly, whether those issues are deemed reasonable or not, they're presenting a real barrier for people to get back onto public transport and getting back onto the bus, and those need to be addressed. So communication and information for the travelling public is absolutely key, and it needs to be linked to both the national and local picture. Excellent. Dawn, thank you very much for that. That is um, a lot of food for thought there. Um, we'll turn next to uh, Keith Aspen, the leader of uh, City of York, Council, uh, what, Keith, what's, what's the situation uh, in, in York? Can you, what, what can you tell us? Good morning, Rob and, and everybody, and, and thanks for inviting me to, to speak on the, the panel, and um, particularly looking at the, the challenges and opportunities on, on public transport, not just in, in York, um, but across the, the north. Um, so I'm, I'm the leader of the City of York Council, as you said, but also a board member of, of Transport for the North. And I've been pleased to, to see increasingly um, councils and council leaders across that area working together and, and starting to, to shout with one uh, voice. Um, but the, the outbreak has, has presented um, all, all of the, the towns and cities in the north um, with a major economic uh, challenge. And that's exactly the same in York. Um, on average, um, York welcomes 8 million visitors every year. And our local and regional economy relies on visitors um, safely being able to return as soon as possible um, and there's no doubt that one of the keys to this is the restoration of trust in, in public transport um, and all of the measures we've implemented to keep passengers safe in York have taken place within that wider context of, of keeping York safe and more general strategy to facilitate social distancing in the city centre and give people confidence to return once again um, has been offered and, and quickly developed by the council which has been working with businesses, organisations and key stakeholders. And I think one of the key things for me is that medieval town planners who set out York City Centre didn't quite consider how we might achieve social distancing in the early 21st century. So let's be York, which was all about being safe, welcoming and considering, is a campaign that, that relates public health and marketing to, to really start to establish the new normal in York. That includes safe ways of getting around the city, public health advice, business recovery toolkits, all aimed to present a consistent and clear message to residents, visitors and businesses. And a crucial part of this was the achievement of a high level of public awareness of the need to wear masks on bus services and trains, along with the implementation of social distancing measures, stringent cleaning procedures, and clear public health messaging. And we've aimed to work together with public transport providers to rebuild residents and visitors, visitors' confidence in public transport. The pandemic has enabled us to accelerate our shift towards a more sustainable and green future for the city. Um, and that to us is pretty key. Um, with a significant rise in people using active modes of travel, we've used this opportunity to deliver substantial investment to improve walking and cycling infrastructure, working towards our previously established goal of having a people-focused city centre and public transport is going to be and is a key part of that longer term plan. Only last week I had the pleasure to attend the launch event of our new fleet of electric uh, double-deckers for the park and ride network, 21 of which will be entering service in York over the next six weeks, which is a partnership between City of York Council and First York. And, and I'm proud to say that York is leading the way nationally with the introduction of the largest zero emission park and ride fleet in the country. 
which is a key part of our efforts to improve air quality and more widely tackle the climate emergency. And that builds on the 1.6 million investment already made, which has delivered York's clean air zone, which is the first voluntary clean air zone in the UK. Whilst months of lockdown has seen a major reduction in congestion, significant improvement in air quality and a rise in the active modes of travel, worryingly with the easing of, of lockdown, car usage has been significantly increasing whilst public transport usage continues to be a fraction of, of pre-lockdown levels. And I was told this morning that in, that in York, our, our public transport usage is predicted to be about 30% currently um, compared to pre-lockdown levels. So for me, the key to restoring passenger confidence in public transport lies in that clear and consistent messaging and also in technological innovation. E-tickets and contactless payments have been commonplace in public transport in York. However, um, on the keys to restoring public uh, confidence in transport network is providing passengers with personalised information that would enable them to better plan journeys and avoid crowded trains and buses. And we need to start trying new solutions using those smart technologies, for example, apps that let you find out how crowded the service is before building or to book a seat in advance. And whilst developing and implementing these, um, we must leave those um, who don't have, we must not leave those who don't have access to, to technological solutions behind. These solutions must strive to help with all uh, public transport users. Um, and it's clear to me that, that public transport will have to operate on a, on a reduced capacity for a while. Therefore, it's going to be absolutely crucial for local authorities like us in York to work with public transport operators in developing and implementing new ways of reassuring communities that public transport is not only a sustainable, but also safe form of travel. Thanks, Rob. Keith, that's great. Thank you very much for that. Indeed. Um, we'll turn next to Alison Pilling from uh, Transport for the North. Now, Alison's been involved in the smart travel uh, sort of agenda for, for a few years now. So I'm, I'm fascinated to hear uh, her thoughts on uh, what's going to be happening uh, sort of in the shorter term as we sort of cope with the pandemic, but also in the in the longer term. Uh, Alison, what can you tell us about that? Uh, thanks, Rob. Good morning. Good morning, everybody. Um, yeah, as you were saying in your introduction, I've been involved with TFN since its inception in 2015. And in fact, the Integrating Smart Travel programme was the first programme that uh, we got going with. Um, in our first phase, it was very much focused on season tickets on rail. Um, so our kind of colleagues in Northern Transpennine and Mersey Rail have been delivering um, smart season tickets across the network pre-COVID to the extent that it's pretty much the only way to get a season ticket now. No more mag strike with those horrible card cards. And also the advantage now that it is actually contactless. And very much more recently, so the last few weeks, Northern have introduced flexi season tickets on Leeds to Harrogate and Leeds to Skipton. It's intended that will be rolled out much more widely. And that's um, 10 journeys for the price, sorry, 10 days for the price of nine. And you can use that over a few months period. And I think that's gonna be critical because initially that was brought in for part-time workers, but actually the kind of varying um, ways we travel and commute in the future, I think that's going to be a really important product, I think as Alex mentioned as well. Um, in our second phase, we were focused on customer information. So fairly recently, we launched a disruption messaging tool uh, where our local authorities, certainly in four of the big metropolitan areas are putting out messages 
about changes to services and that's hosted on an open data hub i'm sure tom will say a bit more about that um, but it's a way in which we can make that data available to people like google and city map remove it so that those apps can get out to people and that information is available and so the kind of data that alex was talking about about say um, capacity on buses and whether or not you can safely social distance on a bus you know there's an opportunity there that we can share that kind of information much more widely although i take the point that earlier speakers have said that we shouldn't assume that kind of apps are the only way in which we can get messages across um, in our other phases um, and i know this is a question coming through we've kind of struggled a little bit with phases three and four to kind of get it off the ground but that's been very much focused on um, contactless payment and operators like alex's have done really well in bringing contactless payment and i know when we were talking about this at the beginning of the program three or four years ago people were saying well our oh, contactless payment that's not really for the north it's a london thing you know it'll never catch on and clearly it, it is the way to pay at the moment and again there is a risk that we 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 forget those people who don't have access to contactless bank cards but that certainly seems to be the future in terms of payment um, and we need to make sure that contactless way of paying for things um, is built into that future. Alison thank you very much for that well I think there's a, a few points that we'll, we'll be coming back to uh, later on that so uh, our final speaker uh, is Tom Forth who um, um, is or specializes in the use of data for uh, the for the public public good. So um, I imagine he's got a, a few interesting points to make on this uh, this subject. So um, Tom, take take it away. Uh, thanks, Rob. Uh, yes, I mean I wanted to start by saying that we came into this um, pandemic with data infrastructure in the whole of Great Britain on public transport that was really pretty good. And I think that's not something we've had the pleasure of saying a great deal about our preparations for the last uh, eight months. But in, in terms of public transport infrastructure, it's been pretty good. So you can go on Google Maps and you can search for a bus timetable and it'll tell you to get a train or a bus, where to walk. All the bus stops are in the right place on the map. All the train stations are in the right place on the map. The trains should go at the time that they're timetabled and the buses generally do go at the time that they're, they're timetabled. And I think that we underappreciate sometimes in, in the UK and in the north of England that that's, that's not easy and it's not actually usual, right? So a lot of other countries in Europe and in the world, you aren't going to get that, that kind of quality of, of service. So that's one kind of good thing that I think has put us in a reasonably good position, which is that we are already, thanks to quite a good data infrastructure, quite confident if we feel comfortable getting back on on the bus getting back on the train to go back to it we will know when those buses and trains are i think there's been some interesting innovations things that i've dreamed of having for the last five years have kind of happened very quickly in the last couple of months i think it's worth everybody thinking how we hold on to those bits of progress so i'll take an example um we've got network rail in Leeds to release uh, data on who uses the train station, the number of people passing through the ticket barriers at Leeds train station every 15 minutes of every day since the 1st of May. We, we've always wanted that data because it lets us know how crowded the station is and it lets us know how busy the city centre is and what type of modes people are using. It's always been too difficult, but once it became really valuable because we want to monitor 
people coming back to work, it has become possible. There's other things that have happened that are, are like that. So I think the, the way that bus companies have been able to roll out via their apps, the ability for people to see how full the bus is, again, it's something that anyone who uses a pushchair or is disabled has screamed at bus companies for, for about 20 years. They said, just please let me know. I understand that we can't have eight pushchairs and two wheelchairs on a bus, but I just want to know before I leave my house and get wet at the bus stop, whether I can get on it. Well, that problem's kind of been solved now. So that, that happened, it was a really quick rollout from a lot of bus companies. Uh, it's not every bus company yet, but it's really quite a lot of them, but you can now see how full the bus is. And I think, again, that's something that will bring people back onto public transport, but it, it hopefully will stick around afterwards as well and continue to fix these problems that existed um, before. So some really great insights there from our TFN Talks webinar last time. Um, and Stephen, I know one of the things that um, everybody touches on and we, you know, it's uh, obviously a big, uh, big deal for us all at the moment in, in so many aspects of our lives is the impact of the uh, COVID-19 pandemic and what challenges, but also what opportunities that's bringing uh, for those of us in the, in the sort of transport and particularly the smarter travel arena. Yeah, I mean, I think I think one of the key points again that was coming out through the through the TFN talks discussion and and others, if you go back to the strategic rail one, I think, uh, you know, and, and if you look at the economic recovery plan, it kind of feeds through everything. What we've always wanted to do is push people onto public transport, um, and I think there is a fear that there's going to be a real challenge in getting people's confidence back. You know, we spent years, if not decades, trying to move people one way, and all of a sudden they've gone back into the car. Um, how do we encourage? those people to a go back to public transport and keep others you know keep switching from the car to public transport so i think yeah it's really really interesting i think like dog badminton cats you know from the bus users uk was key to saying you know communication is key for this um so i think there does there is an opportunity there with the constant rolling out of the of the integrated smart travel work uh, that we do really need to get that communication right and really push people back onto public transport um because i think it's going to be a big challenge over the next few years well, yeah, I was just going to say, but you, you mentioned, you know, time scale there. This isn't, you know, there's no quick fix. There's no immediate kind of rush. It's just a question of analysing the evidence, working with the restrictions, understanding how people's travel behaviour is going to change and then bringing all the industry together uh, to work through those and find the solutions and then get the get the funding and the investment that we need to make sure that we're well set up for the future, isn't it? And that's really where uh, TFN um, is giving real value to this because we are the, the, the body that's bringing operators together with the LTAs who know what's happening on the ground, you know, with the business leaders who can say, you know, this is the this is the future of, of commuting patterns and what have you. So um, yeah, we're right at the front of that work, aren't we? To um, you know, to to understand the issue and to to work through it and uh, to to build back better. I think is the uh, is the phrase, isn't it? Yeah, that's it. Yeah, I think I think like I say, it goes back to the same uh, as the economic recovery plan. You know, I think I think what were fundamental, our objectives, etc. Because we're quite kind of a strategic organisation, you know, we are looking at the life of the strategic transport plan was thirty years. So I think we are kind of at the very beginning of of a, of a journey that we're doing anyway. So I think 
the COVID-19 situation is, 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 is going to be challenging over the next few years, but fundamentally in terms of what we want as an outcome over the next 30 years, I don't really think there's, it's not really impacted on that too much. Uh, you know, the urgency with which we need to start some of the stuff and the challenge of getting the message in to make sure we don't take a step backwards before we keep taking steps forwards is important. Uh, but yeah, crucially, I think it's 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 not a fundamental change from where we are. We just need to work hard over the next few years to make sure we don't go backwards in the mm. short term. Absolutely. Well, plenty of work to do. We're all uh, ready and raring to go. We're on with it. So we will keep going. Uh, thanks so much, Stephen, for your insights. Um, finally, then, on this week's podcast, we're going to hear the second part of my interview with Richard George. He's the chair of DFT's OLR Holdings, so looking after the um, Northern franchise now that it's back into uh, public ownership. Somebody that we've worked very closely with here at TFN um, through our Rail North committee, through our strategic rail team, and to uh, you know understand how how the the industry and the the rail franchise in particular is operating. Um, so we've heard already about uh, his career and his background in rail, a bit of his assessment of of railways. Now in this uh, part of the interview, we're going to hear about what Richard thinks of the future for the rail network, uh, having a look to uh, to what's ahead for the industry. And of course, you know, the uh, the, the COVID-19 pandemic is a big part of that, uh, but a bit longer term as well. Um, so here's part two. We will also be releasing the whole interview as a standalone episode. Uh, so do make sure that you have subscribed to our podcast um, on Spotify or on SoundCloud. Uh, keep an eye on the, on the page on our website as well. So Here's the uh, here's Richard George part two. What does the future of decarbonisation for the rail network look like? Do you think? Well, hopefully, um, we can make sure that the railways is seen as on the side of the angels, and that means you know we we have got the opportunity. We I think I think the railways are seen as quintessentially green transport compared with everybody having a private car. Good, big tick in the box. But actually, we can also do much more about decarbonisation. And, and the quicker we manage to get out of having diesels, the better. If we can't get out of diesels, converting them to hybrids and batteries and whatever, then the quicker we can get on with that process, the better. Because because it's it it's what we need to do and we're well positioned to do it. Um, and and the fact, I mean, public transport, by its very nature, is a more efficient way of using energy than everybody having their own private transport. Ergo, it's the right direction of travel, which is what's so difficult with coronavirus and people retreating into their own little space in their own little car. It is deeply unhelpful on the, on this wider picture. So there always has got a role to play, that big role to play in that. And we need to push that agenda quite hard because, um, uh, but, you know, like a lot of things, it has some costs up front. Well, yeah. Yeah. Speaking of costs, then, um, recent announcement was the uh, Transpennine route upgrade, yep. £589 million, I think it was, for electrification. And, and also, again, another thing that we've spoken about uh, several times already is around um, sort of capacity and, and congestion. So that, that TRU 
and uh, work also brings in new tracks so that you know yep. faster trains don't get stuck behind slower trains what was your reaction to that announcement from uh, from the transport secretary well um tru is a good thing with a capital g and a capital t you know, it, for all the reasons you've just outlined, it, it is it is part of the sort of investment in capacity and infrastructure that we need to further all of the agenda on everything. Um, I do I do have a little worry that goes with it, which is uh, somebody once described TAU to me as building a motorway uh, to go from one traffic jam to another. Uh, and unless we sort out the capacity of Manchester and sort out the capacity of Leeds while we're at it, you're just going to go from one congested area to another congested area quite quickly. Listen, if they're going to announce 600, whatever it is, for TRU, good, good. What next? <laughs> Well, that, that's my next question then what next and you've touched on congestion we know it very well in Leeds we know it yeah. very well on the Castlefield corridor and it has yeah. that ripple effect yeah. um, what would be next on your investment shopping list um, I've been reasonably closely involved in the uh, the task force looking at what we do with Manchester um, so there are a number of investments that need to be made in and around Manchester. A lot of the, a lot of these things are a combination of lots of different things. Um, when you look at the really big projects like um, NPR and HS2 for that matter, these big set piece things create huge capacity shifts and they create huge new opportunities. My worry with all of them is always, yeah, but don't do what the French did. You have to invest in the stuff around them as well. Otherwise, you, you've, you've, you've created a different set of problems. The French spent 20 years building a magnificent high-speed railway network. They ignored their regional railways they ignored Paris and got to the end and then about 10 years ago realised that their regional railways were falling apart and the infrastructure of central Paris was such that it was no longer a world-class city. You have to bear that in mind with these big, these big projects, very sexy, attract the attention. I agree with all that, but actually it's the connectivity in and around them and to them and all the stuff that contributes to it. And whether it's trams or railways or buses, it doesn't matter. But you just have to make sure that all the connectivity goes with them because otherwise they become a sink instead of a distribution point. Uh, so I think, I think um, uh, it will be a hundred small schemes I would vote for in favour of any one big one and you know it's, it's the things like platform zero at leeds which will help you don't go need to go and build a new station in leeds you need to build bits of extensions to platforms and a few more points here it's it's those are the sorts of things that you need to keep things because then you allow technology to build extra things that allow you to use it better and actually you know the 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 problem the North has uh, 
is is also its strength. One of the problems that, that is that it had a huge amount of railways built by the Victorians for essentially freight purposes. So you've got some huge bits of Victorian infrastructure scattered all over the place with railway lines all over the place, which is a huge bonus if you want to use them, but you've got huge cost in maintaining big bits of infrastructure. I mean, I saw the, the last fly-through I saw at TRU, what struck me was places where we're doubling the track, but actually we've got a viaduct already built to that scale to do it because it was built there. And, and we spent 60 years taking tracks out and now we're putting them back in again. And that's really quite interesting because it's the story of the railways in my lifetime. You know, the first half of my career was shutting things and making people redundant. And the second half of my career has been recruiting people and spending money. It's very different. Um, and and, and that's, that's, that's where we are now. We've got huge Victorian infrastructure, which is expensive to maintain, but it actually allows us to do something about the capacity. And I want to touch on... Um future in terms of ticketing as well you've you've, you've mentioned sort of yeah. new technologies a couple of times and yeah. um, again changing travel patterns because of yeah. covid many people who were office based are now working from home much more they no yeah. longer need a three yeah. month six month season pass because if they're only using it two days a week it's not good value for money anymore yeah. um a new Flexi ticket was introduced yep. recently on the uh, Leeds Harrogate line. Leeds Harrogate, yeah, Leeds Harrogate. Um, yeah. And it's what's a, a, as, a, as a trial? As a, a trial, trial. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, tell us a little bit about how um, how technology in that way in 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 flexi tickets is going to um, support passenger confidence, help the railways um, sort of come back as as people need them in in the way that they need them. Well, I think I think the short answer is we have to make sure that it does. The point is that the technology of ticketing and the technology of distribution has moved hugely and rapidly over the last 10 years, far outstripping the railway's ability to cope with it. So actually, the expectation levels on ticketing and where you get your ticket from and how you use it and how you pay for it is has developed a life of its own, nothing to do with what the railways thought it was going to do. So that I mean, the the whole smart card applications and apps and all that sort of stuff. Well, most of the systems that we're using now, we were inventing about ten years. Well, nobody was inventing stuff like that. That got invented well outside the railways. And we have to make sure that actually we've got a generation of people who expect, who just expect to be able to pick up their phone, go bop, bop, bop like that and have the ticket and off you go. That's what that's what the world is now expecting. It is not the way the railway systems were ever built. And the reinvestment in those systems and the refashioning of those systems is going to be an interesting task because actually people now will demand that flexibility. Because if they can't find that flexibility, well they'll just find ways of creating it for themselves by saying, well, I'm not going to go in on Monday then. So, it, it, you know, but the problem has always been, as an industry, at an industry level, has always been flexibility for the customer almost certainly means less money coming in as far as Treasury is concerned. 
Um, that's a difficult one. That's a difficult one because we all know that in the long run, keeping customers happy is what you need to do. And you need to keep customers wanting to come back because, and they're only going to come back if they think they're getting a good deal, etc. So in the long run, you have to run with that. But it means in the short term, you're almost certainly going to take a revenue hit. Though we bemoan in this country that, you know, we will, we only get a five-year, you know, um, uh, funding grant for, for the control periods for network rail, and we only get, you know, the, the franchises of a certain length of time, the rest of it. That length of financial certainty is much, much greater than most railways have in any other country because they have to go through annual spending plans, which is what we used to have to go through with British Rail. And believe me, that creates all sorts of strange behaviours. You know, come, come, come the first week of March, people are spending money all over the place because if it isn't spent by the end of March, you've lost it. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> it's like, you know, get all the potholes filled absolutely, in second week absolutely. of March. Yeah, March, absolutely. absolutely. So, so all that sort of stuff is what happens, um, which is why all these, anything that extends the funding timescale and gives it some certainty, it's hugely beneficial to an industry like the railways, where basically most of the assets are 30 years life. Uh, and and only, I think the biggest change in the last couple of years is that the market is changing so quickly and COVID has changed, made a complete change in the market. And markets don't normally, we don't normally bargain on the markets changing quite that quickly, but they're changing very quickly at the moment. So um, we'll think about wrapping up with a, a final thought on those sorts of uh, timelines then um, and predicting the future, Richard. Get your crystal ball out for me. Mm -hmm. One year's time, three years time, 20 years time. Where are we going to be? What are the railways going to look like? How are people going to be getting well, around? Well, let, let, let's start with 50 years time because it, it, it's instructed to say that. One of the things I used to have to uh, persuade people of in a previous job was that they still needed railways at all. If you're building railways in places like Canada, which I was for a while, and you're going and saying to people, well, what you need is a mass transit system for this city. And I said, well, why would we do that? We've got people like Elon Musk inventing cars that drive themselves and... What, what do we need all that? That's that's 19th century technology. Yeah. I was flummoxed by that argument to begin with, but actually the more I thought about it, the more you look at it. We are still going to be running railways in 50 years' time. Make no mistake. We will still be running railways. They're 150, 200 years old now, and they're getting more and more sophisticated, but actually they still do something fundamentally, which most of these other things can't do which is move a very large number of people very safely. Nothing else can do that. And, yeah, you can do all sorts of things without drivers in the cabs and all the rest of it, of cars. You can even do it with underground trains, and you can even do it with with um, high-speed trains if you really wanted to. You don't need to drive in a cab. But you know what? When I'm flying in a jet, I'd still much rather there was a pilot at the front than or be on auto. And I think the same is true of railways and the same is true ultimately of cars, which is why the driver's cars will not take over the world because actually people like to think there's somebody 
who can intervene when things go wrong. Operator of last resort, if you like. Yeah, <laughs> human being, <laughs> human being. Um, and and actually, um, the railways are very efficient at moving a lot of people safely. So 50 years from now, we'll still have railways. Step one, therefore, carry on investing. That's the point. Therefore, carry on investing. It is not good money after bad. It is good money after good. Keep investing. Um, and therefore, in a, a year from now, I think we'll probably be um, still pondering how long is it going to take to get back to January, February of 2020. Um, but we'll have a lot more knowledge and experience of what has happened in the intervening year to be able to predict it better. Um, I think we'll probably be back but probably only at about 80% of the volumes that we were at. But that's, um, I mean, for somebody like, speaking from, from personal experience, um, January, February experience of commuting from Warrington to Manchester was mm. not good. It was not no. a pleasant experience. Yeah. You know, I don't want to go back to Jan, yeah. Feb situation. Yeah. yeah. And you might find that with only 80% of the people there, it's actually a lot more pleasant. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the pressure comes off the system in all sorts of ways. Yeah. But that's, that, that's then another Correct. another part of the, the passenger yeah. confidence and willingness to go back on the Absolutely. railroad. If I sit here and think, Absolutely. I'm working from home, I don't want to go and stand like a sardine Correct. on that train into, into town. Correct. So 80% so, so is, is my personal guess. Um, I think you could... Uh, you could put forward a pretty good case that says it will only be 60%. I, I think it'll be more than that because generally we tend to bounce back from these things reasonably well, but actually it will it will still take three years to get back to 100. And this is assuming we don't get a second wave and a third wave and a, et cetera. Um, so, I, but I don't think we will go back to the performance problems we had before because we won't let it. It will cause some grief here and there. It will mean that some trains don't get put back in, that people would like to be put back in. So some of the some of the discussions we're already having with Royal North Committee and TFN that the task force is having about what trains should and shouldn't be in the timetables for December 20 and December 21, those sort of arguments are not going to go away. Um, uh, in some senses, COVID has made those arguments easier because because actually at the moment we don't need those trains, so it's sort of it's easier to not put them back than take them back. When, so, but that's a, that's a that's a that's a temporary issue, I hope. Um, so three years from now, I think we will probably be. Um, back in volume terms to roughly where we were. Um, but I do think that it will manifest itself slightly differently in the way in which the loads are spread. And we will have to be much more judicious about the way the trains are built back in and what the length of the trains is, etc., as opposed to just going back to where we were. We can't go back to where we were. It wasn't working. 
or it wasn't working in a way that was satisfactory for anybody. Um, so, so I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a lot more optimistic, can I say, about the railways of 2040 now than I was 30 years ago, looking at what the railways would be like in 2020. Because 30 years ago, in 1990, you know, we were still mid 80s. I was still fighting battles about whether we should tarmac over most of these railway lines and turn them into coachways. I mean, there was a very vigorous campaign launched to to convert the Chilton line into a into a coachway into central London. Why are we spending all this money on Victorian railway lines? That was that was only thirty years ago. So I'm an awful lot more optimistic. I mean, you know, my my as I say, the early part of my career was spent closing things down and making people redundant. We're in a much happier place than that. We just have to make sure that we build better from where we are today uh, because we 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 mustn't make the mistakes we've we've made along the line most of the mistakes we you look at 2018 the mistake of may 2018 was people trying to do too much too quickly to get to somewhere that they wanted to be but actually couldn't get there they, they'd forgotten that there wasn't enough room to do it um and and we now have systems designed to stop anybody having that much authority to say no <laughs> when i was a, when i was a youth the regional operations manager would have just thrown you out the room if you'd said you were going to run more trains through the regional operations manager said no you're not end of conversation well and there's nobody could do that you, we've got regulators and we've got DFT, and we've got all sorts of people with with their aura in as to what should happen. The trouble is, somebody has to stand up and say, "Can't do that. Stop it." So we mustn't collectively let it happen again. One of the things that's immensely more complicated now than it was, and I'll say this quite deliberately, back in my day of running railways, I I run administrations these days. I used to run railways back in the day. Um, is that what we what we expect of railway managers now is infinitely more complicated than when I was a frontline railway manager. We expect them to be politicians. We expect them to deal with the media and the press, and we expect them to deal with stakeholders, powerful stakeholders, with powerful opinions about what should be done with them. You know, 30, 40 years ago, if you were a railway manager, you got on with running the railway. That was it. If you're going to change the timetable, you change it. You didn't have to go and ask anybody, apart from the regional operations manager who tell you to bugger off. You, know, you, you, you just you just got on with it and did it. And um, and it's a much more complicated, much more democratic world that we live in. And that's good. That's fine. Because actually, the railways should be there to serve what what the local political and community needs are not the other way around and the railway trouble with british railways board was it got it it began to think it was in charge of what people needed not there to deliver what people wanted so responding to stakeholder and community needs is absolutely what the railways is there for but that makes doing it 
infinitely more complicated because you can't just decide and get on with it. And it makes things much slower. So the Secretary of State was recently talking about it's ridiculous to take 55 weeks to change a timetable. Yeah, it is. Of course you can do it in six weeks. You can do it in six weeks if you're not going to consult with anybody about what it should look like, if you're not going to go through a statutory consultation process, and if you're not going to sit down with the trade unions for 12 weeks and agree what all the rosters look like, etc. If you're not going to do all that, of course you can do it in six weeks. But actually, you do want to do all those things to do it properly. And it's a much more... So, so I have huge admiration for my frontline colleagues these days. It's a much more complicated job than when I did it. And I grieve for those guys in Northern who were castigated all the way through, you know, 2018 and 2019 um, for something which was fundamentally not their fault. Okay, the can manager, we can always manage things better. Every one of us is guilty of looking at things in hindsight. We could have done that better, better. Yeah, of course we could. But actually, it fundamentally wasn't their fault. And they got a load of grief uh, from all sorts of directions. And, and you know, for a, a hugely complicated job these days. Christ, I better retire. <laughs> <laughs> Some fantastic insights there from Richard George about where we might be heading for the future of railways. Uh, as I said, we will put the full interview up on our Spotify and on our SoundCloud sites. So do make sure you have subscribed on those. If you ever want to listen back to any of the podcast episodes, they're all on there. And we've also got a dedicated podcast page on our website as well. Um, and do get in touch if you've got any ideas for future podcasts or even if uh, you've got an idea for a guest as well. We're always interested uh, to interview different people and get some new voices onto the programme as well. That's it for today then. Thank you ever so much for tuning in. As always, we'll be back with another podcast next week, bringing you more about transport in the North, all of the things that are going on in our world. Uh, in the meantime, don't forget to keep an eye out on our social media channels, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram and LinkedIn. Um, it may be summer silly season, uh, but we're busy, busy, busy planning ahead for um, all things future of transport. So we'll keep you in touch on, on social. Uh, keep an eye on our website, particularly on the TFN Talks and on the podcast pages to make sure you're subscribed and up to date with our future events. Uh, and don't forget to get in touch. Like I said, if you've got any ideas for this podcast, um, give us a shout. We'd love to hear them or any questions that you want to put to uh, put to us. Um, that would be fantastic to hear them. So stay safe, everybody. Um, and we'll see you again next time. Thanks for listening to the Transport for the North podcast. Don't forget you can subscribe on Spotify and SoundCloud so you never miss an episode. You can find us on Twitter, LinkedIn and Facebook for all our latest updates. And join us on our website where you can find all the latest news and sign up to our All Points North newsletter.